Hey guys, and welcome back to another Friday solo episode of the podcast. Today's episode is going to be advice that I would give my 25-year-old self. And here's where this episode is coming from. I've asked a lot of guests recently what advice they would give their younger self. And sometimes I've gotten a substantive answer, but more often than not, the response that I'm getting is, well, I wouldn't change anything because everything that I learned from the past brought me to where I am now. So I wouldn't go back and change any of those things. Well, I would, I would go back and change a couple of things. And I think that I did a lot of things right, but there are a couple of things that I would go back and change. So this is my list of maybe five or six things that I would have done differently. And as my gift to you, and maybe to somebody in your life who's 25 to 35 or so and just starting out their professional career, this is the episode where I'm going to go through the things that I would have done differently looking back. My hope is that we can reach somebody who's in that age bracket and accelerate their track to get to where I am and beyond even faster than I did. Welcome to Time Freedom for Lawyers, where the goal is to become less busy, make more money, and spend more time doing what you want instead of what you have to. Bringing together guests from all walks of life who are living a life of their own design and sharing actionable tips for how you too can live the life of your dreams. Now, here's your host, Brian Glass. Okay, so for perspective, and if you don't know who I am, my name is Brian Glass. I'm a personal injury lawyer in Northern Virginia, and I've been at it for about 15 years. I represent people from all over the state who've been hurt in car crashes. And on the side, I invest in real estate. And this podcast documents my own financial journey, both in building businesses and in building my portfolio of passive income properties on the side. Hopefully, somebody shared this podcast with you if it's your first time here. So do me a favor, guys, if you have somebody who's in your life who's between the ages of 25 and 30, who you think would get value out of this podcast, do me a favor and share it with them. It's the only way that this show grows. I do have a monthly goal for February in terms of downloads that I'm trying to hit. This podcast is going to come out on the 24th. And my hope is that if you share it with just one person, that'll accelerate me towards hitting the goal that I have for February. So thanks for that. So let me get to it. You know, here's the story of where I was at 25. I graduated law school in 2008 into the teeth of a great recession. My first job coming out of law school was not one of these big law jobs where you were earning $160,000 a year. I was earning only $60,000 a year. I started at a general practice firm and I worked there for about four months. What I didn't like about that firm is that I was trading dollars for hours. I didn't really philosophically, philosophically get along with my boss and I didn't feel like I was learning all that much. I'm just kind of thrown into the teeth of it and it was sink or swim and I, I didn't dig it. Anyway, I got the opportunity to go and work at a plaintiff's personal injury firm. So I took that in January of 2009. All right, so let me start off with things that I think I got right. So coming out of law school in 2009, my wife and I got married in October 2009 and we bought a house very early on. I think we actually closed on our house about three weeks before we got married uh, and it was one of those things that we got right. You know, there's advice that goes either way on this, like either buy a house early or there's advice that says you should never own a house. You should always rent. I think buy the house, be paying down your equity. We got into the house with an FHA loan, three and a half percent down. So we'd saved up a little bit of money when we bought the house. I think it was like three fifty or so. And so we were into it for like twelve or fifteen thousand dollars and paying down the equity on the house. And as we're going along. And the other thing that we did really, really well early on is that we were saving like 10 or 15% of our paychecks 
into various accounts, like either the 401k or an IRA. And at the time, we were both doing Roth 401ks and IRAs because I knew that my salary was eventually going to catch up, right? And so paying money into an after-tax Roth account while I was in a lower tax bracket is something that I definitely got right early on, right? I've already paid tax on it. I'm foregoing the deduction on the tax in the year that it's going in. But once that money's in the bucket, it's never getting taxed again. And of course, at the time, I'm at a lower tax bracket because I just wasn't earning all that much money. The other thing that we did really, really well is that every time we got a bonus or a bump in salary, that money went directly towards loans and directly towards investment. We never, ever really increased our cost of living or lifestyle expenses, at least not for the first five or six or seven years from any of the additional money that was coming in. And so, you know, it, it got automatically dumped into a different account and was forgotten about. And primarily what I was trying to do was pay down the law school student loan debt. So the 80,000 or so that I had out, it was, is that like seven or 8%? So it was not insignificant, the amount of interest that it was earning, but just every bonus that came in was getting lump sum paid towards that account to pay down that interest debt. And so I think I was like 31 or or maybe 32 when I finally had eliminated that debt, which was amazing because in, in my early 30s, I still had friends who were carrying around six figures of law school debt and I didn't have that burden following me around. So that's another thing that we got right, you know, really early on. And now, you know, we'll pivot and I'll get into the things that that I think we did wrong and the mistakes we made. So one of the things that we got wrong was selling the first house. Like in 2014, we bought to have our second kid, we bought a new house and we sold our first house. Knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have sold the first house. My my thinking at the time was if I got a renter to come in here, it would basically be cash flow neutral, right? Somebody would pay my mortgage, but I would have to deal with tenants, I would have to deal with toilets, I would have to deal with repairs. And so I've got all this other stuff going on in my life. I, I don't want to have a cash flow neutral or maybe cash flow, you know, marginally neg- negative asset in my life. And that turned out to be a big mistake. You know, five years, six years later, I still get emails from Zillow and from Redfin telling me what the current value of the house is. So just per perspective, like we sold it at, I think, 385 and captured a little bit of capital gain on that, but not all, not a whole lot. And I get these emails now that are like that townhouse is worth 600,000 north of 600,000. So, you know, had I, had I known what I know now would have been able to refinance that house, take some money out, plow it back into some other investment vehicle. And all the while have somebody in there paying down my equity. And at this point it definitely would be a cash flow positive asset. So knowing what I know now, I definitely would have kept that house. Second thing we got wrong was insurance. So, you know, right after baby number one, we hooked up with our family's life insurance and disability insurance guy. And I bought term insurance and I bought disability insurance. And I also got talked into this convertible universal life product, which is total crap. And it was a completely inappropriate product to sell somebody who's 25, 26, 27, 28. I have kind of gone back and forth on this. So, I do think that there's a role for these lump sum universal life policies, but it's not earlier in your career. It's it's when you have significant cash value that you can plow into these things for a couple of years or, or just up front in the beginning so that you then have the whole cash vehicle so that you can quote, you know, loan money to yourself, which I've never totally understood. But the investment vehicle that we got put into 
was like, I think we put two or $3,000 in to catch up some of the investment, quote, investment aspect of it early on. But, it, you know, seven years into this stupid thing, it still is not really cash flow positive in terms of if I, my premium is 400 bucks, like there's not a $400 increase in, in the value of that account. And so, you know, got talked into it by a guy who I thought at the time knew more than we did. And I thought at the time had our best interest in heart, but it was just a completely inappropriate thing to sell somebody that young and really robbed us of cash flow. Cause again, the premium was like 400 bucks a month. And in retrospect, 100% should have just bought the term product and invested the discipline. And I know that I'm somebody that has the discipline to invest the difference, but most people aren't. And so that's kind of the way that these products get sold. I definitely have the discipline to invest the difference into a brokerage account, and I would have been far, far better off had I done that. Third thing I would have done differently, and this one doesn't really get talked about very much in financial independence circles. Um, what gets talked about a lot is saving more money, right? Increasing your savings rate and decreasing the amount of money that you spend. And I agree that the the wealth is built on the difference between what you earn and what you spend. But there's two sides of that equation, right? One is spend less money. The other is earn more money. And so I would have focused a lot more time and effort early on in my career on figuring out how to increase my income as a personal injury lawyer. So at the firm that I was at at the time, I, I got origination credit. So if somebody referred me a case and the case settled or it went to trial, I made a portion of the settlement fee. And it got to the point where, you know, my salary was never more than $100,000 a year um, while I was working at that firm. But it was to the point where I was making two and three times my salary in bonuses every single year. Um, but that wasn't until late in my career where I'd had late, late in my career, I say as a 39 year old, but late in my time there, um, is that is I had clients who started to come back and I had clients who started to refer their friends and, and that just kind of happens later in a practice, but there's a way to, to expedite that and to move, move that faster and compress the amount of time that you have to wait before that stuff comes back. So knowing what I know now, here's how I would have accelerated that timeline. I would have figured out who's the circle of people that have these kinds of cases that can refer them to me. And so Russell Brunson calls this his dream 100. Who are the people uh, who have their own audiences? Who are the people who have their own circles of influence? And that way I don't have to go and one-to-one -one find customers myself. All I have to do is find the guys who are in front of customers. So starting out as a personal injury lawyer, that might be chiropractors. Um, you know, it might be physical therapists, typically at solo and small practices who have a book of patients who can uh, marshal those patients your way. So one of the things that I started doing is every time I had a settlement check with an owed medical balance to a chiropractor or a small physical therapy practice, I made a point of going in person so that they could put a name to the face and hand delivering the check. And that ended up getting me some referrals back. Not, not every time, but it did end up getting me referrals back. The other thing that I would do differently looking back is I was way too heavily reliant on my my partner, my old bosses, and then my partner's circle of friends. So we spent a lot of time hanging out with his friends, but his friends were never going to refer me cases, right? They were going to refer them to him. And so I would have spent more time and effort and money going out and finding people who have lawyers who have circles of influence who might refer a case to Brian. And so it, the other mistake that I made is I spent way too much time hanging out with defense lawyers. It's good to be friends with insurance defense lawyers, but those guys aren't the ones getting calls from people who are hurt. 
And so thinking about how do I get in front of lawyers who have injury cases who might refer them to me? A couple of things I would have done differently is go to estates lawyers and try to solicit death cases. It's kind of morbid, but estate lawyer is often the one who's getting the call after the auto accident because he's got to button up the estate and he's getting asked who his recommendation is for a personal injury wrongful death lawyer, right? Like what could you do to be in front of those lawyers? The other strategy that I would have tried is getting in front of lawyers who have big cases. And so, you know, in Virginia, we have Virginia Lawyers Weekly. I'm sure there's a reporter in a case reporter in whatever state you're in that reports these million and multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. And so what I would do now, if I were much younger, is I would be trying to get in front of those lawyers either by like email is great, but better handwritten note. Hey, congratulations. Saw your your verdict in Virginia Lawyers Weekly. I'd love to talk to you about that case sometime, right? Always leading with some value from myself because successful, busy lawyers, like they don't want to I don't always want to take time to talk to younger lawyers about how to build a practice, but the value that you might deliver is, dude, I, I see that you're a solo or you're at a small firm and I see that you're working on these big, big cases. What are you doing with your small ones? What I've found being in a lawyer mastermind group is that there's plenty of lawyers who never think about what to do with small cases and how to monetize small cases. So if I have a book of multi-million dollar cases, and I'm getting phone calls about cases that are worth ten, fifteen, fifty thousand dollars. I might just be passing those up. I might just say they're too small, or I might say you might be able to handle those on your own. But as a young lawyer, getting in front of lawyers like that and saying, "If you funnel those cases to me, I will funnel back to you referral fees," like that's a way of, of providing value to those lawyers, getting in with those lawyers, and then scraping a book of business that they might be throwing away that would be helpful to you to build your own revenue and then ultimately build your own income. And so along those lines, like one of the things that I think financial advisor types gets wrong is earlier in your career, if you have the kind of career where you have the trajectory where you can 5X or 10X your your salary, uh, is the amount of money that you ought to be saving early in your career. So I'll just take my, my early example um, my early earnings as an example, like I was earning $60,000 a year. And so if I was saving 10% a year, that would be 6,000. And if I were able to increase that to $15,000 a year, that's 9,000, right? So that's a difference of an additional $3,000 a year. So that's, that's one way to save more money, but also there's a way to earn more money. If I had instead taken that $3,000 a year and had lunch with somebody every week for 50 weeks and I'm paying $60 a lunch, how many more referrals do you think I could have generated out of that lunch program, right? How much more ROI could I have generated beyond the 3000 extra? Like for me, that's, that's half of a case. If I get one half of a case, that program has paid for itself. So networking with people who can refer you cases and, and then like, that's just a better way to think about how can I reinvest my money than if I put this into the stock market. So Alex Hermosi, uh, who I think is brilliant, would call this investing in S&M 500 instead of the S&P 500. So, you know, before you're earning $100,000 a year, it's really about thinking, how can I, um, how can I not increase my savings rate? How can I not invest in somebody else's assets? But how can I reinvest in myself, either through coaching programs or masterminds or buying my way in front of people who might have cases to refer me or who might generate some more revenue for me down the line. None of which is to say that you shouldn't be saving money. You should save money. You should have an emergency vehicle. You should be investing in your retirement account. But 
if if you have a career where you can have a tremendous salary growth trajectory, then you're going to be far better off using that money to grow your income early in your career than you will be using that incremental change in your savings rate to grow your savings rate by one or two or 3% every year. So the last mistake that I made early on was thinking there was some kind of a financial finish line. And that once I got to the finish line, like I would just retire and go sit on a beach somewhere. And I'll tell you, I, I know people and I'm friends with people who have the capability because of passive income streams to go and sit on a beach somewhere. And none of them are doing it. Why is that? Well, it, either it's because the being the kind of person that it takes to get to that finish line doesn't let you do it. Or it's because more often, I think they've not retired from working, but they've retired to working on the kind of things that excite them and, and get them a reason to get out of bed every day. Like, And so I, I had gotten so good at saving and building towards that finish line. And I'd made such a game in my head of every dollar gets me one step closer that we were doing silly things. So I'll tell you a funny story. My wife and I, at, at some point, we we were a Nielsen family, or it, it might not have been Nielsen, but it was it was some one of these companies that tracks the amount of TV and radio that you watch and listen to. And so we had these like little beeper looking things, and you had to move the beeper looking thing once an hour to make sure that it stayed on because it had some motion sensor in it. And it would track like what kind of stuff do you listen to? What kind of TV do you watch? And in exchange for moving the little beeper thing once an hour, they would send you like three or five dollars a week, depending on the, the number of hours that you'd moved the thing. And I, I had gone so far like I had this separate account set up where when the check came in and it, God, it was like a $12 paper check that would show up once a month. I'm just not remembering this. I would scan it and I would deposit it straight to that account. And that was like, Hey, here's how much money we made really passively sort of, but also carrying these stupid little beeper things around. And anyway, like I'd gamified this, this so much that I got really, really good at saving and I wasn't really good at spending anything. And so like the last, the last thing that I would tell myself as I went back is that you have to have some enjoyment along the way. And so I would tell 25-year-old Brian, like you have to have some kind of fun coupon account, right? I had all these little accounts set up so that I know when things were coming in and when they were going out. And for, you know, I had an emergency fund and I had when here's the, the next car fund and here's the next house fund. But I didn't have a, a fun fund. And so I would have been much better off as every bonus or salary or or increase or whatever came in, diverting some of that money into a fun fund and requiring myself to spend it. And and I have that now. Like I have a vacation fund now that I put money into. Some people call this like a not my money fund, right? And you have to drain it every once in a while just to make sure that you're you're spending all this money because the whole point of working this hard and the whole point of having this money is so that you can go and do the things that you want to do with it. Like who wants to die with the biggest pile, right? Anyway, it's very easy to look at your friends uh, when you're that age on Instagram and, and Facebook and see all the cool places they're going to and the vacations that they're taking and say, you know, either they're making way more money than I do and that's why they're doing this or they're weighing credit card debt and that's why they're doing this. And the fact is you never really know inside anybody else's wallet what's going on. But I would have been far better served having a pool of funds that was dedicated to going out and doing fun shit 
than feeling like I was tapping into my my regular pool and pulling myself back from this finish line that I thought was there that's not really there uh, every time we spent money. And I would have had a lot more enjoyment out of spending the money had it not been um, you know, taking me in my, in my view further away from the finish line. All right. So listen, that's the, that's the end of the podcast. And if you made it here, I hope that means you've gotten some value out of this show. And again, my ask, and the only way that this show grows organically is that it gets shared and shared by you. So if you've got somebody who's 25 to 30, 35 or so, uh, like in that age range in your life, and you could share this podcast with them, it would mean a lot to me. Um, because the only other way that this thing gets um, shared is like I spam all of my friends and family with it. And I can I do that, but I can only do it so often. So lastly, uh, be really helpful to me if you haven't done it already. If you go to Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts, like this show, um, leave me a rating and a review, and subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great week. Catch you next time.